0: Tonight we continue our expository study in the book of Colossians, the epistle of Paul to the Colossians, and what a great study it is, an epistle that exalts the Christ, an epistle that is called the most Christ-centered epistle in the New Testament. And of course it was designed to exalt the Christ in opposition to some extent to a Judaic-gnostic heresy that was threatening the church at Colossae, where there were those who were seeking to represent Jesus as less than the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as Paul declares him to be in this epistle. and So he counters that false doctrine with an exaltation of the Christ by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is profitable for uh, their time, it was and is for our time and for all time to come. That's the beauty of Scripture. It is profitable for all time to come. Tonight we look at Colossians chapter 2, and we begin in verse 1, and we'll uh, look at the first three uh, verses, they are on the screen, that's good, and uh, we will uh, look at these uh, verses and look, uh, the Lord willing, through verse 7 in our study tonight of Colossians chapter 2. As the New King James renders it, for I want you to know, he writes, what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged and being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and and knowledge all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge notice he says i want you to know for i want you to know and it goes back to verse 29 tying in to what he writes there to this end he's talking about in verse 28 his goal is to teach every man to warn every man in all wisdom verse 28 of chapter 1 remember and he says that in order that the goal is that we may present every man Perfect in Christ Jesus. Where will that presentation take place? As we noted last time, it will be at the judgment. At the day of judgment, he hopes to be able to present them perfect in Christ Jesus. Complete or whole in Christ. And then he writes in verse 29, as we studied last time, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. We talked about that word striving, the fact that it is a word in the original language in which the New Testament was written, from which we get our word agony or agonize, to agonize over something. And I think we understand the meaning of agonizing. There, there's, a, there's an intensity there. There's a fervency there. When we talk about agonizing over something, we're not talking about simply giving casual thought. Uh, to it. We're talking about an intense interest in something, something that is very near and dear to our hearts, something about which we are vitally concerned. And that's what he writes in verse 29, striving, striving. I am agonizing over you in effect, you Colossians. That's how much love I have for you. That's how much concern I have for your faithfulness, for your steadfastness in the faith. And it's important for us to appreciate that because it is the same kind of agony, if you will, that we're to have for one another. It's the same kind of agonizing or striving in a good way that we have for one another as we seek to help one another be at that judgment scene, as Paul wanted these Colossians to be at that judgment scene, in an approved state. And to hear those words, well done, good, and faithful servants, you've been faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. That's what Paul wanted so badly for these Colossians and for all his fellow Christians, for all those in whom he had, uh, with whom he had a part in preaching to them and encouraging them. But now when we come to verse 1 of chapter 2, he continues, For I want you to know what a great conflict, and there's that word again, The word translated striving in verse 29 is from the same word that is translated conflict in verse 1 of chapter 2. Again, he's talking about agonizing over them. And it may very well be that part of that agony is expressed in his fervent and regular prayer life for these Christians at Colossae. Paul was a man of prayer. But not just a man of uh, saying prayers, he was a man of prayer who prayed fervently and sincerely and regularly, agonizing uh, in prayer. It's, um, it's like the idea of, um, of uh, Epaphras. And uh, Epaphras was uh, once said to be one who agonized or uh, labored fervently. Uh, in prayer. That's over in chapter 4 of the same book. Look at it, chapter 4 and verse 12. Turn over there. Epaphras, who is one of you, that is from Colossae, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, and here it is, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers. And again, laboring fervently is from that word from which we get our word, agony. So he is saying there that Epaphras is one who agonizes for you in his prayers. When Paul says he's doing the same thing, though prayer is not specifically mentioned, knowing Paul to be the man of prayer that he was, he no doubt was agonizing, as Epaphras was for the Colossian brethren, in his prayers. Agonizing for you. And it reminds us of just how fervent our prayer life needs to be and how much we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ, not only for those who are struggling with physical illnesses, but praying for one another that we will be and continue to be and continue to grow to be more godlike in our lives every day. I want you to know, he said, what kind of conflict, great conflict, agony I have for you. And he mentions those in Laodicea, another congregation, of course, in Asia Minor, in that area where Colossae was. And then he says, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. There are those who have taken that statement to mean that the fact that he said as many who who have not seen my face in the flesh, that he had never seen any of the brethren at Colossae, that he'd never been there, had never seen them. That may be the case, but I don't take that expression to necessarily mean that Paul had not been to Colossae. It may very simply be the case that he's talking about The fact that there are those there now at Colossae who were not there when he was there and he hadn't seen them in the flesh. And so it may not uh, necessarily, in fact, I do not think it necessarily means that Paul had never been to Colossae. But what is he in great conflict for them over? Verse 2 gives us that goal or that purpose. Here's what I'm agonizing about. Here's what I'm wanting for you. Here's what I'm praying so fervently for you that their hearts, verse 2, may be encouraged, that their hearts may be encouraged. You know, encouragement is important. It's important for us to encourage one another and to lift one another up. But where does that encouragement come from? How is it that we gain that encouragement? I think it's tied to the next phrase in this verse, being knit together together in love. If we're knit together in love, we're going to be encouraging one another. There's no question. You can't have have a situation in a congregation where that congregation is truly knit together. And think of that concept. Think of that figure. Think of that idea that he's expressing here. You're talking about something that is knit together. That's a pretty tight bond, isn't it? It's a pretty tight bond. And he's talking about being knit together in love. If we are bound together that strongly, knit together that strongly in love, then that has to be tied to encouragement. Because we are going to be encouraging one another if we have that kind of relationship and if we are knit together in love. But think about it as he goes further here. There are those who would say, amen, we sure need to be knit together in love, but they would be less concerned about doctrine more concerned about just an attitude and a good feeling and a loving attitude and feeling, not necessarily tied to knowledge of God's Word. Paul does not separate the two. Being encouraged, may be encouraged, that's my goal, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and listen to it, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. In other words, love is tied to doctrine. The full assurance. Notice that. Notice the full assurance of understanding. Can we be fully assured of what we claim to believe? Can we know that we know? Or is our faith something that's speculative? Something that, as we mentioned before, is some sort of, Uh, leap in the dark. No, Paul talks here about full assurance of understanding. There are four passages in the New Testament where he mentions that. One of them elsewhere other than this passage is 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5. And there to the Thessalonians he reminded them of something. He said, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and listen to it, and in much assurance in much assurance you can be assured Paul writes that the gospel is the gospel of Christ that it is the Word of God in much assurance as he goes on in that passage to say as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake and when he mentions mystery here we've already talked about that if you go back to chapter 1 where we uh, have studied in verses 26 and 27 notice those verses again the mystery which has been hidden from ages. Not something that cannot be known, remember, but something that was hidden, that was unrevealed, that has now been revealed. That's the meaning of mystery here. And he said there, remember, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. What is that mystery, Paul? Verse 27 of chapter 1, To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is it which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? In other words that the gospel was to be for all, for Jew and Gentile, and the revealing of that mystery, not something that cannot be known, but that which had heretofore been unrevealed, but now it is made known. That's what he refers to here again in chapter 2, when he talks about the knowledge of the mystery of God. That's simply the gospel that has now been revealed, that it is for all Mankind, the knowledge of the mystery of God, assurance of understanding, knowledge, knit together in love. You cannot separate love from knowledge and the understanding of God's will. How do we know about love? How do we know whom to love? Except through the word of God. And when he says in verse 3 then, In whom, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the last one mentioned in verse 2, and so it may very well be that verse 3, when he says, in whom, is a reference to Christ, but certainly it could include the Father and the Son here. But in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But all authority, remember, was given to Christ. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And remember that the main purpose of this epistle is to exalt the Christ, especially in contradiction to the false teaching that you needed a a group of angels or a series of angelic beings that reached from God down to man because God could not have direct contact with humanity deity couldn't come directly in contact with humanity therefore Christ could have never become human and still remained deity remember that was the Gnostic theory but Paul counters that and the fullness of the Godhead bodily resides in Jesus Christ, as we'll see when we study verse 9 of this same chapter. So in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It defeats the Gnostic idea of angelic beings being necessary to bridge the gap between deity and humanity. Now then, as we look at uh, verses 4 and 5... He tells us something that's very important as to why he is saying what he's saying, why he is writing what he's writing. He says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And again that gives us an indication that he's countering the Gnostic heresy, because he's saying in Christ and God in Christ perhaps the hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are there. Are there not in some series of angelic beings, but in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he says, I'm saying this to you lest anyone should try to counter that and deceive you with persuasive words. There's something very important we need to appreciate here. two things, I think, from this verse that are very important. One is, don't take lightly what he says when he says, I say. (laughs) Now this, I say. What I mean by that is the word of God. He says, I'm saying this, I'm saying this, this is the word of God, this is the word from God, this is the word through an inspired apostle, and I am saying this to protect you from the deceitful words of man. In other words, it is the word of God that will protect us from the deceitful and persuasive words of men. And we have that word in its final and complete form, and therefore we have everything we need to protect us from being deceived by the false teachings in our time and in any time to come. I say, doesn't that tell us the word has power? I I am saying this to do what? I'm saying this to keep you from being deceived. That tells me that what is said, written in here, will keep me from being deceived if I'll just pay attention to it and if I'll study it as carefully and as regularly as I need to. I have everything to keep myself from being deceived. Second point, though, that I think is important here is that Paul mentions the possibility of being deceived by those with persuasive words. Now, again, this gets us back to one of the hundreds of passages in the New Testament that teach the possibility of apostasy. Because if there's no possibility for a child of God to lose his soul, to be deceived and the implication is that by that deception your faith is overthrown. If there's no possibility of that, why does Paul ever bring the subject up? Why does he need to say anything to keep you from being deceived if as a Christian it's not even possible for you to be deceived because once you're saved you're always saved. It's simply another clear example of how many times in Scripture there are warnings that clearly show us, warnings issued to Christians, That Christians, after they have become Christians, can be deceived. And it also tells us that those who would deceive us can be very, very persuasive. And that error can be enticing. And error is enticing if you're looking for something that will tickle your ears, make your life easier, and make you feel good about what you're doing when you're doing badly. Feeling good about doing badly. And there are many who are clamoring for that kind of religion, and there are those who are eager and willing and ready to give them that kind of religion. And so, it is possible for a Christian to be led astray, and yes, error can be persuasive, and we need to be aware of that, but the Word of God protects us if we'll use the Word of God as we should. And then in verse 5, he says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now what is he saying here? He's saying I'm not with you in the flesh, but I'm with you in spirit. My mind is with you. You're on my mind. You're in my prayers. I'm agonizing over you, as already said, in verse 1 and so I'm with you in spirit, but then he says, rejoicing to see your good order. If he's not there in the flesh, and um, he's only there with them in spirit or in thought, how is it that he can see their good order? Well, some, some have, have tried to say that he had some divine power by which he could look in on the Colossians. I frankly don't believe that to be the case. I believe that he just simply uses the word see in an accommodative way based upon what he has been told about their steadfastness and about their faithfulness. Now why would we conclude that? Well, look back at Colossians chapter 1 verses 6 through 8 and I think you can see why we would reach that conclusion that this is based on reports that he had received. Because he talks about the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Now listen to verses 7 and 8. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, verse 8, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. He says Epaphras had declared their love to him and their faith to him. So therefore, my conclusion is that when he says, I rejoice to see your good order, he simply uses the word see in an accommodative express, uh, way, meaning that he has received the report from Epaphras, mentioned in verses 7 and 8, and also over in Colossians 4 and verse uh, 12. And so, he had learned of their love, he had learned of their faith, he had learned Of what? He had learned of their good order. Now think about that word order for just a moment. I have learned of your, or I rejoice, to see your good order. The word order is a military term. It's an ancient military Greek term, which indicates an ordered troop. Not just a general dispersion of troops, but a detailed order. Ordering of troops. In other words, troops that are in formation, if you will. Troops that are disciplined. It's an interesting word that he chooses here. Because to me, it says something about adherence to a specific pattern of doctrine. I rejoice to see your good order. I rejoice to see that you're in ranks. I rejoice to see that you are following the specific pattern of of the New Testament that is set forth in the New Testament. Why is that so important that we emphasize that? Because there are so many, and yes, even in the church today, who tell us, forget the pattern. There is no such thing, never has been any such thing. But when we see words like this used by inspired apostles, it reminds us when he says, I rejoice to see your order, that you're in rank. You are an ordered troop, as it were, a detailed Ordering, And then he says the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And again, that word steadfastness is indicative of a firm, solid foundation. Something that is completely solid. But again, as he rejoices to see their order and their steadfastness, it implies the possibility of what? That they could be out of order. It implies the possibility they could be without steadfastness in the faith. In other words, again, if there were no possibility of them being out of order and he had no reason to rejoice over any following of a pattern and they were just free to do what they wanted to and it didn't matter what they did, why would he ever call attention to this? Why would he mention, I'm proud of, so to speak, in the right sense, your steadfastness in the faith, if their steadfastness was already assured and there was no possibility of losing that steadfastness? So the very mention, again, shows the possibility of losing that steadfastness, of being disorderly rather than orderly. And then he says, but notice, the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Where must our faith be? Our faith must be in Christ. We must be in Christ. Now look at verses 6 and 7, the final two verses at which we'll look tonight. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now these are important verses, and we'll tie in some verses down at verses 11 through 13. Briefly, we'll come to those verses and spend more time with them when we come to that that section shortly, the Lord willing. But I want you to think with me about this statement, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus. Do you ever hear people in the denominational world talk about the importance of receiving Christ? You hear that term a lot. You just need to receive Jesus into your heart. You need to receive Christ. You need to receive the Lord. Well, he uses the term received here. Nothing wrong with that, that term as long as we understand Uh, what we mean by it, and as long as what we mean by it is in complete harmony with what the New Testament teaches. So what does it mean to receive Christ Jesus? Well, we can know what it means to receive Christ Jesus, because here Paul says, as you have received him, so walk in him. Well, how had they received him? You go down to verses 11 through 13, and you see exactly how they received Christ Jesus. When I know how it is the Colossians receive Christ Jesus, I'll know how it is that I must receive Christ Jesus or that anyone must receive Christ Jesus. What does he write in verse 11 beginning? In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Not a literal physical circumcision, but he's talking about a spiritual application of it. What is it? Here it is, verse 12 buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of god who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses now we'll talk in more detail about those verses when we come to them but we allude to them now to simply tie them back to verse 6 because in verse 6 he says Since you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, or as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, then keep walking in him. Well, how did they receive him? They received him by a faith, obviously, that led them ultimately to be what? Buried with Christ in baptism. Which clearly says that you can't receive Jesus without being buried with Christ in baptism baptism because that's exactly what the Colossians did and in this same chapter which I have at times entitled the process of purification because that's what it primarily deals with the process by which the Colossians were purified the process by which they received Jesus and it involved nothing closely akin in any way shape form or fashion to a sinner's prayer they received Jesus by being buried with Him in baptism, obviously preceded by a faith that led them to repent of their sins and to confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so if we're going to receive Christ Jesus, it's going to be by obeying the gospel, not by praying a prayer. But notice he says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. What does that mean? Keep on obeying the gospel. Not the first principles of the gospel, not the terms of admission, into Christ and into the church to which he adds you upon your obedience to the gospel but keep on obeying the gospel keep on obeying the teaching of the gospel keep on obeying the New Testament walk in him and we've talked about many times how many times in Scripture from Old Testament to New Noah walked with God before him Enoch walked with God the Ephesian letter is filled with admonitions from this same writer the Apostle Paul about walking In love, walking in various aspects of of Christianity. Walking, it's activity, it's forward moving. That's what we are to do. Keep on obeying the gospel. Now look at verse 7. Rooted. Part of that walk involves what? Being rooted. What does it mean to be rooted? To be rooted means to be what? Grounded. To have a good set of roots. Roots that go deep. Roots that will endure the... The persecutions, roots that will endure the temptations, roots that are not shallow uh, roots as described in a part of the parable of the sower where there was no root and, and uh, when the, the sun scorched then uh, they fell away. No, we want to be rooted and the only way we can is through application of the teaching of the gospel. Along these lines, if you look at Ephesians 3.17, remember... There Paul wrote that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. In this case, verse 7, he adds to rooted, built up. Rooted and built up. And again, we go back to the Ephesian letter, a very similar statement there in chapter 2 and verse 21 of Ephesians. There Paul wrote, in whom Christ, the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Growing, growing, being fitted together, a building of a building. You know, we are a work in progress as Christians. We're a work in progress and we will be a work in progress if we understand the Christian life. We'll be a work in progress until the Lord comes again or until we die. That doesn't mean that we don't reach a level of maturity in Christ. We do if we apply ourselves to the teaching of the gospel. But even when we've reached that level of maturity and where we're, we are firmly rooted, where we are built up, where we are steadfast, where we are maintaining that good order, we are still a work in progress. Because there's more to learn, and there's more in which we can abound. Because notice, rooted and built up and established, established in the faith, the faith, the system of faith, Christianity. And notice this, been, have as you have been what? Taught. How are we rooted in the gospel? How are we built up in him? How are we established in the faith, in Christianity? As you have been taught. We have to be taught. Somebody has to teach us, or this has to teach us. But we have to be taught, and we have to learn. And we have to learn. And when does that learning process end? When we die. Or when the Lord comes again. Because notice what he adds in the very last phrase. Of verse 7, abounding in it, abounding in it. That's a superlative that says you increase and you grow in the faith every day, hopefully, as you apply yourself to the all-sufficient, all-powerful Word of God. We've got to make sure that we're doing that. And that we're encouraging others to do that. And the more we do it, the stronger we become. The less likely it is that we will falter and fall. And the greater likelihood that we'll be able to reach others because of the lives that we are living. But notice something else, the last two words. Abounding in it, and then he adds, with thanksgiving. The Apostle Paul had a habit of doing that, didn't he? Including thanksgiving as an undergirding as an undergirding quality that should never be absent in the life of the child of God. No matter what is happening we can always be thankful. We can always be thankful. And so with thanksgiving. Remember what he wrote to the Philippians? In Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. There it is again. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. With thanksgiving. Don't ever leave out the thanksgiving. Abounding in the faith with thanksgiving. Tonight, are you in the faith? As we close our thoughts tonight, can it be said of you that you are in the faith, that you are a part, of the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only way to be a part of that body is to be added to it by the Lord Himself. And the only way the Lord will add you is upon your sweet, simple obedience to the gospel of Christ. To receive Christ Jesus the Lord just as these Colossians received Him. How? By a belief in Him as the Christ that leads you to repent of your sins, to confess Him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then to be buried with Him in baptism as they were. For the remission of your sins, that you might rise to walk in newness of life, being a part of the faith and then striving to continue to walk in him as you have received him, abounding in the faith, always undergirded with an attitude of thanksgiving. There's no life like the Christian life. And if you're not experiencing that life, we plead with you to begin this very moment in obeying the gospel. And if you need to come home to your first love in repentance and confession of sin that's been committed in a way that needs to be confessed publicly, we plead with you to do that as we'll pray with you and for you as we stand to sing to encourage you.